All right, guys, welcome to Salt City. My name's Drew, for those of you who don't know me, and we are continuing our series called To Live as Christ through the book of Philippians. I believe we're about halfway through this series. And one of the things that we're exploring in the book of Philippians is we're exploring what it looks like not to just be saved by what we believe, but to express our salvation through what we do. I remember a really life-transforming season of my life was when I was in high school. And I think it's because for the first time, I saw people who were roughly my age start to live out their faith in a vibrant way. I was involved in a high school ministry, and the leaders of that high school ministry were college students. And I remember seeing them give up their Friday nights to come to my high school football games, or giving up their Saturdays to take me camping. One of these guys had his pilot's license. I remember him taking whole weekends to fly me around in a plane. And I just remember realizing along the way that these guys were doing this because they loved Jesus and that it was an incredible sacrifice for them to do so. They were giving up time with their peers. They were giving up time even doing homework at times. They were sacrificing all of their free time to make sure that they were spending time with guys like me to pour into our lives so that we could become more like Jesus. And I'd seen adults do that, but the impact for me rang home when it was somebody close to my age who I could see myself being like. And I think that's when this Christianity thing starts to really have high impact in the lives of the people around us. When they can see that it's not just something that we believe intellectually, but it's something that we are sacrificing for on a daily basis. So we're simply looking at this idea in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18 today, that salvation ought to impact our daily lives. Shouldn't just be this intellectual set of things that we say we believe. It ought to be something that is lived out in our daily experience. So we're going to see Paul unpack three opportunities that we have for our salvation to begin to flow through us and not just come to us. And so the first opportunity that we have is for us to work out our own salvation. Look at verses 12 through 13 with me of Philippians chapter 2. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that this passage begins with the word, therefore. And whenever you're a student of the Bible, whenever you see the word, therefore, you should ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? The therefore is to indicate that Paul is building his argument on what he has just said. And last week, Drake did a great job of unpacking 
the person and the work of Jesus and how his life ought to be a model for our life. And one of the things that we read in that passage in Philippians 2 verse 8 about Jesus is that he was found in human form and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we know that Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, to save us from our sinful lifestyle and bring us into a lifestyle, not of selfishness, but of imitating his humble self-sacrifice to the relationships that we have. So he says, therefore, in light of the reality that Jesus has saved you by his humble self-sacrifice, now you are not an enemy of God. You're not under God's wrath. You are beloved. You're dearly loved by God. You are as righteous and acceptable and beautiful as you could possibly be in your heavenly Father's sight because of what Jesus has done. And so you need to notice that the Apostle Paul is not saying, therefore, people who God's sort of disappointed with work for your salvation. He's saying work out your salvation. Working for your salvation means that everything depends on your effort. And at the end of the day, God is going to either say, yes, you're in, or no, you're out, based on your performance. What the gospel says is you are as acceptable as you could possibly be. And because of that, your salvation ought to impact your daily life. So the call is for us to work out our salvation. In other words, what Paul wants us to think about is how can humble, Christ-like, self-sacrifice impact my daily decisions in every single sphere of my life. So think about your home life. Think about your work life. Think about your life within the church. Is each moment planned and prepared so that you are exhibiting humble, self-sacrifice to reflect the character of Jesus, or is there some other goal that your life is oriented around? Now, how do we begin to think like the Apostle Paul wants us to think? First of all, we meditate on our own salvation. Notice he uses very personal language in this passage. He says, work out your own salvation. He's wanting us to think about who we were before we knew Christ and the specific impact that the gospel has had on our lives. No person's testimony is the same as any other person's testimony in this room. Each of us have a unique set of experiences before we came to know Christ and a unique experience with Christ that has made us who we are. And he's saying, in light of that unique experience that you have had with the unchanging God, I want you to think about the way that you do everything in light of the gospel. The purpose of your life is not your own comfort. 
The purpose of your life is to be transformed into the image of Jesus. This is the place that you will find true joy. So Paul is saying you have received this gift of salvation, not just so that it would come to you, but so that it would flow through you. But it doesn't flow through you automatically. It takes intentionality and purposefulness for you to think through each sphere of your life so that that actually happens. And he's not saying that the motive for that is duty. He's saying that the motive for that is awe. Notice he says to do it with fear and trembling. Do it with fear and trembling. So we are to work out our salvation because of this beautiful gift of salvation that we've received. This made me think about something that might initially seem disconnected from this point. It made me think about making chocolate chip cookies with my mom when I was a kid. So we've got all these pictures and old photo albums, and it's like every fourth page, there's a picture of me standing on a stool with a spoon making chocolate chip cookies with my mom. And that's because when you make chocolate chip cookies with your mom, you get to lick the spoon, you get to be part of the process, and most importantly, you get to eat chocolate chip cookies at the end. But I was thinking about this idea of working out our salvation. It's like one of the best parts when you're making chocolate chip cookies is when you get the chocolate chips at the end. And what happens is you get all the goodness. Maybe you put them in your hands. Maybe you dump them in the bowl. And then what you do is you work those chocolate chip cookies throughout the whole lump of dough. And they're the key ingredient. Once you get the chocolate chip cookie, the chocolate chips throughout the whole lump of dough, that's when you're ready to bake them or that's when you're ready to eat them. But I just remember sitting on that stool and multiple times in my life and just kind of with my hands or with a spoon, you want to get the chocolate chips throughout the entire dough so that the whole lump of dough experiences the goodness of the chocolate chips. Right? Here's... Here's what you want to be true of your life. You want the goodness of the gospel of salvation to be worked into the whole lump of your life. You want it to permeate every corner of your life. Not because you have to, but because you get to. Because the gospel is what will beautify your life and what will let other people see how amazing Jesus is. And here's what Paul says the motive for that intentionality is. He says the reason that we would do that is because, that's what the word for means there, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. Here's why we work out our salvation. Here's why we put this intentionality into it. Because Jesus Christ himself, the one who sacrificed himself on the cross for us, now lives in us. God is not saying, go try to imitate Jesus, good luck with that. He's saying, you have the power to imitate Jesus because the living Christ lives in you by his spirit. It is possible 
to live this life, not in your own strength, but in the strength of Jesus. And I think if you read through the 13 letters of Paul, what you're going to see is that this view is what motivated him to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel and make self-sacrifice after self-sacrifice after self-sacrifice after self-sacrifice. And it's because he knew that it wasn't a self-sacrifice. It was a sacrifice that Jesus was making in and through him. He learned to tap into a power that was outside of himself. So when Paul says here that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it's not because we dread that God is going to come and get us. It's because we stand in awe that Jesus has come to live within us. Let me give you a few examples of this in Paul's letters to show you how prevalent this way of thinking is. Think of Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see it? Christ lives in me. The goal is not just mere imitation, it's submission. If you're a Christian, you have Jesus living in you. Look at 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Do you realize this about yourselves? Jesus Christ is in you. He has not left you alone. And so our daily task is to submit to his lordship and say, Jesus, I don't want the throne of my life. I want you to have the throne of my life so that you can live your life of self-sacrificial service in and through me in every sphere of my life. Look at Colossians 1:27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See our hope is not in our ability to sacrifice ourselves for Jesus. Our hope is that he has come to live in us, and that he will live his life through us. And look at this last one, Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, when God calls us, to work out our salvation in every sphere of our life, we should have a sense of destiny about that call. Because we understand that God has laid this path in front of us. He's put us in our job. He's put us in our family. He's put us in our relationship status. And in the city that we live in, and in the house that we live in, because he has good works specifically prepared for us that we should walk in them. He has made you, 
for a specific set of good works to reflect the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ lives his life in and through you to those around you that literally no one else on planet earth will ever get the chance to do. And so we approach this task with fear and trembling. Jesus lives in me. My life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I will glorify God in my body. I will wake up each day and my life will revolve around honoring Jesus. The main task of my life is to work out my salvation, not to earn my salvation, but as an expression of the gift that I've been given. Okay, here's the amazing thing about Paul. He doesn't like to leave us in the vagueness of that reality. So there's this big call on our life. Work out your salvation. That's going to look a million different ways in all of our lives depending on what season of life we're in and the specific tasks that God has called us to. But Paul gives us some general principles to guide us that are incredibly simple. And the first one he gives us is, do all things without grumbling. In other words, no one ever came to Jesus because they looked at your life and be like, man, guy can really grumble. He's really upset about a lot of things. I'd like to come to know Jesus and follow after him. All right, look at this. Philippians 2, 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain, or labor in vain. Okay, so if we're going to imitate Jesus, Paul is saying this attitude is essential. The negative way of saying it is everything that we do should be done without grumbling or questioning. Now, I don't usually unpack Greek words, but these are too fun not to. So, the word grumbling here is the word gong goose moss. And basically, what he's getting at with this word grumbling is internal or external wordless murmuring. We might call this moaning and groaning. This is like either internally or like, or externally. I'm not going to make the sound again because I just made it. But you're just mad, and and people can tell that you're mad, but you're not saying anything. There's not really anything going on in your mind. There's just like this deep-seated, like, I am angry about life in this situation. The word questioning is the word dialogismas, and it's where we get our word dialogue from. So this is an internal or external debate This is wordy murmuring. It it usually expresses itself in like, I don't want to be here. I I, I don't know why you invited me here. 
what in the world? This is so lame. This is so boring. You know, it's this dialogue, and it's usually this repetitive dialogue. When we are on the path of self-sacrifice, we start to tell ourselves this story that what we're doing is not worth our time. And here's what Paul is saying. No matter what you're doing on the path of obedience to Christ, it is never honoring to him to either grumble in terms of sounds or grumble in terms of words. How much time do we waste grumbling and complaining and murmuring? And so we need to be intentional, Paul is saying, to work out our salvation in such a way that we eliminate grumbling from our vocabulary, that it is gone. How is that possible? I think one of the first things is to recognize how often we grumble and what we grumble about. And how even if we don't express it, it's evident to people around us that we are unhappy about what we're doing. Let me give you an example from my own life. So on Friday, I took my son, Gabe, my five-year-old son, golfing for the first time. And we started the day with a donut, and then we got a golf cart, playing nine holes, beautiful day. I was playing decent to start out, and then I hit a couple bad shots. And uh, I didn't even realize that I was apparently making some groaning sounds. Oh, can't believe. Should have hit an eight iron, hit a seven. Hit it over the green. Why did I do that? You know, just that self-talk, right? So there's like groaning and there's, there's talking to myself. And I sit down in the cart and my son Gabe goes, Dad, why are you so angry? Because <laughs> I built up this day like golf is fun. You know, <laughs> you should go play it. Like, why are you so mad? And when he said that, right, I, I'm a pastor, so I'm studying this passage the whole week, and I'm immediately, like, starting to laugh at myself, because I'm like, okay, I'm playing golf. That is an amazing thing to be doing. It's a beautiful day. I'm spending time with my son. Not only are we playing golf, we're riding in a cart. This is, like, luxury at its finest, and I am groaning, and then I'm contrasting myself mentally to the Apostle Paul, right? And I'm remembering how the Philippian church was planted and how Paul was in prison and was singing hymns to Jesus. I'm groaning on a golf course. He's singing in a prison cell. He had internalized the truth of the gospel in a way that I hadn't and applied it and worked it out into his real life in a way that it made an impact on somebody around him. 
See, I missed an opportunity to influence my son for Jesus and tell him with my life that Jesus is more important to me than golf. Paul did not miss an opportunity with the Philippian jailer to tell him that Jesus was more important to him than his freedom. And as a result, this church was planted. Guys, how often do we miss the opportunity to show other people the love of Christ because the dialogue in our head or the murmuring in our heart is keeping us from seeing the greater purpose of our life. And Paul gives us a very specific daily practice for us to begin to take steps from a murmuring life to a rejoicing life. And he says that the key is found in the Word of God. He says, if you're going to shine like lights in the world, if you're going to be blameless and innocent, if you're going to be children of God without blemish, if you're going to make an impact on the world around you on a regular basis, he says in verse 16, the key is to hold fast to the word of life. So he describes the Bible as the word of life. And he says, hold fast to it. Now, he's not just talking about daily Bible reading. He's talking about desperation for the Word of God. It's an understanding that I desperately need to think the thoughts of God after him because I recognize that my own thoughts often depress me and stress me out. And so I need to daily cling to the Scripture. Moment by moment, cling to the Scripture. So I think he would say to us, if we're struggling with this murmuring and questioning spirit, he would say, do you have intentional time with God in his word set aside every day and it is it of such quality that it sets the trajectory of your entire life so that what you spend your time meditating on in the morning is what you are still meditating on in the late afternoon. And he says the way that that becomes possible in your life is when you don't just read the word, but you hold fast to the word. Now, here's a practice that helps me do that. When I'm at my best spending time in God's word, I write down the scripture. I write it down. What writing it down for me helps me do is it helps me to both meditate on it and to memorize it. And so sometimes, for example, if I'm studying the psalm of the day, I will write out that psalm in its entirety. And then as I'm writing it out, there might be two or three verses that stick out to me as I'm writing it out. And I might write out those two or three verses three or four more times. And what I find happens when I think about the Word of God in that way is that I begin my morning by meditating on the Word, and by late afternoon, I'm still rolling that Scripture around in my mind. So that 
The Word of God is having this transforming effect on my life. So if Jesus is like a fire that's burning inside of you, the Word of God is like throwing gasoline on that fire because Jesus loves the Word of God. And so if you want Jesus to be living through you, you spend time in His Word every day. So we hold fast to the word of life. This is a daily practice and a moment-by-moment meditation so that grumbling is replaced with rejoicing. And then I think there's something that's not explicitly stated here, but it's a reality that's going to be true in our lives. We are not just repenting of our outward actions. We are repenting of our inward murmuring. We repent of our attitude. We say to ourselves and to God and the people around us, I'm sorry that I've been withdrawn and distant and angry and frustrated and impatient. It is because my attitude has not been reflecting the attitude of Jesus. Because Jesus is drawn to the brokenhearted. Not to people who have their lives cleaned up, but to those of us who will recognize that on a moment-by-moment basis, we sin. We mess up. And then what do we do? We grab onto the Word of God again. So we're constantly confessing our sin. Some people call this spiritual breathing. We're confessing our sin. My attitude is not reflecting the attitude of Jesus. And then we're breathing in the word of God, and we're saying, God, thank you that you didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So that's the negative way of saying it. We do all things without grumbling or questioning. Paul ends by calling us to something incredibly positive. He says, instead of doing all things grumbling, be glad and rejoice. See, Christianity, guys, is not just cautiously avoiding sin Christianity is joy. And that's what Paul ultimately wants to call us to. He wants to to call us to the most full and joyful life there is possible. So this is what he says in verses 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul is using this rich Old Testament metaphor to describe the relationship of his ministry to the ministry of this Philippian church. He's using the metaphor of a drink offering. So in the Old Testament, what would happen is you would bring a sacrifice to the tabernacle or the temple, a big animal of some kind. And if you really we're going to give a great sacrifice to God. You would not only take like your young best calf and lay it on the altar, you would also bring a really good drink, like a, you know, your $150 bottle of wine with you. And, and that calf would be laying on the altar and you would dump that drink offering on top of the calf. So as to say, okay, my most valuable livestock is not enough to give to the God who gave me everything that I have. I'm also going to pour this drink offering. My best meal and my best drink 
are going to God. Because of his love for me, I'm responding by this type of rejoicing. And this is what Paul's saying. Even though my life is not my own, and I'm constantly pouring myself out, I'm constantly giving away my best to you for the sake of the gospel, he's saying, I don't even see it as a sacrifice anymore. Even though he's writing this from prison, even though he's going from place to place and he's getting stoned for the sake of the gospel, he's getting persecuted for the sake of the gospel, and when he is in a specific place, he's a tent maker, so he's bivocational, so he's spending his days like everybody else does, working hard, sewing tents together, selling them. And then at night, every single night, he's doing ministry. He's spending time with hurting and broken people. And they're pouring out their hearts to him. And he's burdened by their needs. He's bringing them to God. And his life is one of continual sacrifice. But he says, I don't see it that way. Instead, I am delighted to pour my life out. And he's saying, I want to invite you guys in to being glad and rejoicing with me as you place your life on the altar. Now, how could we possibly sustain living these sacrificial lives when everything in our world says, Look inside of yourself and whatever you desire, do that. And if you do what you desire, then you'll find true joy and true happiness. How can we buy into this worldview that if we sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom of God, we will find true joy? Here's what I think it is. Here's what I think motivated the Apostle Paul. Is he understood that people last forever. That this world and its desires will pass away, but that God's kingdom is forever. And that a person who does not know Jesus will spend eternity away from him, and that to have Jesus is to have life. When we have this understanding that Jesus is life, to live is Christ, then every sacrifice won't seem like a sacrifice at all, but will feel like our greatest joy. Now, those of you who have been Christians for a while, you've tasted this. As you've worked out your salvation in certain areas of your life and given certain parts of your life to Jesus, you've seen the joy of allowing him to live through you. Okay, one of the ways that I've worked the gospel out into my life is I've decided every time I get my hair cut, I'm sharing the gospel with whoever's cutting my hair. Okay, it's the perfect opportunity to share Christ with somebody. And it's really easy because they always ask me what I do. <laughs> I'm a pastor. Now you got to listen to my spiel. But I've had so many great conversations, sometimes awkward conversations, with the person who's cutting my hair. But there is always this sense of joy when I leave thinking, I wonder if that person will read the Gospel of Mark like I just encouraged them to do. I wonder if they'll show up at our church and I'll see them out in the crowd. 
I wonder if they'll take a next step and read that book that I recommended to them. Or I wonder if that question that I asked them will impact them on their deathbed someday. Maybe they won't walk with Christ their whole life, but they'll remember that crazy pastor who shared the gospel with them while they were cutting my hair, and they'll remember, and then I'll get to heaven, I'll be like, no way. (laughs) Just that one question? You came to Jesus. It, It opens up all of these possibilities. And here's the reality, guys. I think that right now we are living in one of the most exciting times of gospel opportunity. We have all this cultural unrest that's going on. We're kind of on the backside of this global pandemic. And so many people in our lives are asking these questions. Where is hope found? I thought the world was like this, and my whole view of it just got flipped upside down. And they're looking for somebody who has a joy that is greater than the world itself. And Paul is inviting us in. He's saying, guys, make sacrifices and be glad about it. And make it your life ambition to show the people around you the salvation that you have in Christ. And what will begin to happen is you'll begin to see the fruit of that around you. So that's what I'm inviting you into. I'm inviting you into this gospel life. But remember, the gospel life isn't empowered by you. Remember Jesus, it says of him that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. And it's that Jesus who lives in you and is walking with you every single step of the way. And a simple prayer as you walk, Jesus, not my life through me, but your life through me, will yield fruit every day. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have not left left us as orphans, but you've come to live inside of us. And that you have not just come to live inside of us, but you've called us to a great mission and purpose for our lives, to live out our salvation to a watching world. And I pray that we would take the time to think about how we would like your self-sacrificial service to be evident in every sphere of our lives so that this city would see the glory of King Jesus in us. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.